Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I want to invite your attention to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Your phone or Bible. Words will also be on the screen if you don't. So I'm sure you've noticed I have a box up here this morning. Thank you. I have a few things in my box. I have a bag of marbles. You know, marbles come in all different shapes and all different sizes and all different colors. Marbles make noise if you rub them against each other. Marbles are hard. It's interesting, though, that marbles are so hard that when you rub them against each other, they don't scratch each other. They don't have any impact on the other marbles. I also have some grapes. The grapes are a little different. They're soft. They're pliable. When you kind of rub them against each other, you end up getting grape juice. Much different than marbles. Anne Ortland, in her book, where I got this idea from, Up With Worship, makes this statement about marbles and grapes. She says, the average church is too much like a bag of marbles. We scratch against each other. We make a little bit of noise. But we really don't affect each other very much. She goes on to say, But the church should be much more like a bag of grapes that mesh together, producing a sweet-tasting juice because of their interaction. Do you agree with her? I do. I think she's absolutely right. You know, a marble is hard. It's already formed. You can't change it much. A grape, on the other hand, kind of starts out as a seed, and then it becomes a plant, and then maybe eventually it produces grapes, which we either eat or it produces juice after that. And it's a process. The grape is always kind of growing. That's the way the Christian life ought to be. We ought to be transforming. God ought to be transforming us all the time. We ought to be growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our mission statement here at Burning Bush Baptist Church is connecting people to Jesus and each other. We talked last week that one of the ways that we do that is by living a life of generosity. But another way we do that, you're not going to make much of an impact on the world or other Christians if you yourself are not growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is all about following Jesus and pursuing the things that Jesus pursued. There are a lot of Christians who I think heard the message of Jesus and they accepted him and they have become a believer and they've kind of dabbled a little bit in this whole discipleship idea but yet they've kind of stopped right there. 
It's like they've had a little taste of Jesus, but that's it. You know, especially, I think, Southern culture. I think in a lot of our churches, there's kind of this idea that, that a Christian is like, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I wave the American flag, I'm a patriot, I'm a good person, I kind of help people when I can. And that's what a Christian is. Being a follower of Jesus is, it, is not just a cultural thing. It's not on par with being a patriot or waving the flag or helping somebody occasionally. When you follow Jesus, he wants you to jump in with both feet. It ought to be like this adventure where you're growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's this process where you're always being changed and always being transformed as you learn more about him and what he wants from you. Let me give you an illustration. In our culture, think about how a person gets married. It, it, it's a process. Even if you believe in love at first sight, getting married is still a process. Let's say a 25-year-old guy is in Starbucks having a cup of coffee and he sees this very attractive young lady come walking in, catches his attention. She gets her coffee and she sits down. So he stands up and he walks over to her and he said, I noticed you when you walked in. You're the one for me. We should get married. You can say that, right? But then let's say he takes a little bit further. He drops down on one knee. He pulls a diamond engagement ring out of his pocket. And he says, will you marry me? What's she going to say? You're out of your mind. That's what she's going to say to that nut. Unless it happens to be a really big engagement ring. <laughs> With a big diamond on it, then she might say, well, well, what's your name? And a conversation will ensue. But that's kind of the marriage process. You know, there's this time of, of checking each other out and checking out interest and the attraction and all those kind of things, getting to know each other. And then maybe eventually there's a commitment. And then if there is a deep commitment, eventually they might say yes to each other. And they will be engaged. You see, the same process happens in the Christian life. God wants us to become believers. He wants us to explore who he is. And then he wants us to get to know him better. He wants us to grow and engage. He wants transformation in our lives. He just doesn't want us to stop. So over in the book of Acts chapter 2 today, we're going to look at how the early Christians and the early church were involved in this process. And let's begin with verse 42 of chapter 2. It's going to kind of be the only verse that we're looking at today, but we're going to kind of really plunge into almost every word. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
So after they became believers, and after they were baptized, this early church, they just didn't sit around. They just didn't wait for Jesus to come back. It says they devoted themselves. In the original language, Greek, this word devoted, it's, it means to continue to do something with intense effort. That word intense has significance here. You know, some people exercise with intensity. Some people are learning an instrument or they're working on improving their musical abilities, their voice or whatever, and they do it with intensity. Some people are really devoted at work and, and they're intense about it. Well, it says these people practice their faith with intensity. They're not just standing around. They're not cheerleaders. The early church was not about this, this social club that you belong to, that, you know, that kind of thing. They weren't just marbles brushing against each other, making a little bit of noise. They were meshing into each other's lives, and they were changing each other, and they were making a difference. So let's look at those four cornerstones that they were devoted to, that they were putting intense effort into. The first one is scripture. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. Well, what were the apostles' teachings? Just to give you a little bit of historical dates here so you kind of know where we're at in history. This, this event here in Acts chapter 2 was probably taking place, the early church, somewhere between 40 and 50 A.D. The book of Acts is generally said to have been written in, uh, in A.D. 62. So this is a few years before the book of Acts was written. It's before most of the New Testament was written. But the apostles still had the teachings of Jesus and a lot of what would eventually become the New Testament. So they were studying scriptures. Today, we don't have James and John and Paul and Matthew and those folks around. But we do have the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. We have God's scriptures to study. You know, sometimes when I talk to people about reading the Bible, reading God's word, I hear this. Well, it's just boring. Can I make a couple suggestions for you if you feel that way? First of all, cut off the other distractions when you're trying to read God's word. Secondly, try... Reading a different part of the Bible than maybe what you're in. You know, sometimes you get into Leviticus or Numbers and some of those books, and, and it can be kind of dry, and it can be like you're, you know, you're just hunting for something that has application to your life. Sometimes you get in those so-and-so, we got so-and-so, so-and-so, we got so-and-so, and it's like three chapters of that. Well, go somewhere else. Go in the historical books of the Bible. Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel. I mean, it's like movies sometimes. It's like, did that really happen? It's just crazy some of the things that happen. Go back to Genesis and, and the, the stories that are in the book of Genesis. Go to the Gospels. Go to Proverbs and just get the really practical stuff. But change what you're reading in the Bible. And then secondly, try changing your version. You know, sometimes we read the same version over and over, and it just kind of gets to be like a rote thing. And, and you know, you've read it so many times, you just kind of fly through it, and you... You get to the end, like, I don't even remember what I read. It's amazing what changing the version that you read will do. 
You know, if you're using some kind of Bible app, usually there's like 35 different versions listed. Try a different one so you can find one you like. Maybe if you've always kind of used an older version, try something more contemporary. Try the Message Bible. That's one of my favorites. Try the, the New English Version or the New Living Translation or some of those. And it just can put a different perspective on it. I'll just give you an example. Like many of y'all, I was doing the F-260 program last year. And uh, this just stuck with me months, months afterwards. I was reading uh, where David kind of was passing off the scene, King David, and he was... His son was going to succeed him, so he's giving his final words to Solomon. And I was listening to it in the Message Bible, and I've read this passage lots of times. But anyway, in, this, in the Message Bible, it basically, David says to Solomon, Be a man, and this is how you do it. And then just bam, 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 bam. It was so clear. There was no trying to figure out what the outline was or anything. It was like, be a man, and Solomon, these are the steps that you need to take. No, it was because I was using a different version. It's amazing what putting it in kind of contemporary language or something like that will do. So try a different version. Also, make sure you have a plan. You know, this, you know, okay, well, I think I'm going to read my Bible today. Okay, here we are. Psalms chapter 135. That's not really a good plan. Get you a plan, you know. The F-260 that we used last year is a great plan. Take it five minutes a day probably. There's all kinds of other plans. You can go to Uversion, Y-O-U-Version, and uh, .com, and they've just got all kinds of plans on there. Pick something that works for you and your lifestyle. Don't get caught up in minutes or chapters. That's not what's important. What's important is letting God's Word talk to you. John Piper is a pastor and theologian in Minnesota. He says this. Reading through the Bible in a year involves four or five chapters a day. If you think you have to remember all you read while reading those four or five chapters, this will feel absolutely overwhelming and pointless. Then he goes on. Even if readers forget most of what they just read, God's word lodges itself in the mind and heart and incomprehensible ways. You know, he's absolutely right. It's not time, it's not minutes, it's not remembering everything you read, but it's amazing the things and the nuggets you'll pull out of it. One of the things that's neat about the F-260 is people put comments on there, and I will read a lot of those comments and just how God speaks to different people, and that in itself is encouraging. Incredible things happen when you read God's Word. Let me tell you, mention something else to you. It's great to do it individually. It's also great to study God's word in a group. Iron sharpens iron, scripture tells us. So the first cornerstone is scripture. Putting God's word into our lives on some kind of daily basis. But the second one he talks about here, the second cornerstone, is that of fellowship. Listen, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Do you know fellowship is something that you can't do by yourself? Christianity is not a solo activity. It's made to do in community with other believers. They were devoted to fellowship. Now what is fellowship? I think sometimes through the years we've gotten the wrong idea of what fellowship is. 
I remember when I first came to Burning Bush, uh, the, in the bulletin, it would have this place in the middle of the, of the service where it would say, fellowship time. And basically, it's where we shook hands. Well, that's not really fellowship. I mean, it's just a poor use of the word. And of course, we've taken that word out of there. That's not really fellowship. You know, sometimes you, you've been in churches probably where they say, we're going to have a meal after, we're going to have a fellowship after church. There'll be a meal. Well, that's not really fellowship either. That's just eating at church. Sometimes you hear people, I used to hear this when I was growing up, you see a couple guys outside maybe talking or something. Man, did you see the Bulldogs play yesterday? Oh, yeah, I mean, that was a great game. Sure, it's cold this morning. Yeah, yeah, it's a little chilly out here, a little bit rainy. Well, good fellowshipping with you. No, you know. Well, that's not fellowshipping. That's shooting the bull with somebody. We just had this confusion about what fellowship is. Fellowship comes from a Greek word, quinoia. And this is what it means. It means sharing something in common, something widespread, something familiar. One guy defined it this way. The expression of genuine Christianity among the members of God's family. One of the most important things you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ to grow and transform in your relationship is to find a small group of believers that you can have community with. I don't know how many of you watched the, the national championship game Monday night. I know it ended quite late, but in the uh, post-game interview, they interviewed Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback of Clemson, grew up at uh, Cartersville, right down the road here, attended uh, Tabernacle Baptist Church his whole life. They asked him a, a question of this nature. I don't remember the exact words, but they asked him, you're 19 years old, there's all this hoopla surrounding you, and you just won a national championship how do you stay grounded? How do you keep from letting all this go to your head? You know what he said if you saw the interview? You don't remember this? He mentioned his small group. 19 years old. He totally gets it. He mentioned that his small group keeps him grounded. Jesus, he had his kind of inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Then he had his bigger circle made up of the twelve. We also know he had a group of about 70 and then eventually a group of about 120. And he poured into this. But you see kind of the different levels here that Jesus had? 4, 12, 70, 120. A church ought to be like that. In, in your life, you ought to be kind of in those circles. I've got a diagram here. This is different from the diagram that Joe showed, showed a few weeks ago. In church, you have... That blue circle, that worship circle. That circle is kind of inspirational. It's important. We come together collectively. We worship corporately. We, we, we sing songs. We pray. We sing praises. We, we sing hymns. We hear God's word spoken. Hopefully it encourages us, challenges us. So worship is kind of this inspiration time. But it's not really fellowship. Because basically, like, we're all looking at the back of each other's heads for the most part, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot of interaction. There's not a whole lot of, of getting to know people. But it's important. It, it is. It's really important. And then you have a second group there. That green circle is kind of an information circle I'm calling it. And that's kind of, 
It's not as big as gathering in here where there's going to be hundreds of people worship in the worship time today. But it's, it's maybe a, a bigger group where there's information shared. It might be a larger Sunday school class. It might be a, a, a men's fraternity group or some of our ladies' Bible studies. And it's, it's prim, primarily information, and, and you are studying God's Word together. But then the third group, that yellow circle, is where you get into a group where it's much, much smaller. And it's kind of growth, and it's accountability. And, and you're cheering each other on, and you're encouraging each other, but you're also holding each other accountable. You know, so many times, people stop at the blue circle. And that's the extent of their taste of Jesus. They show up occasionally, maybe, maybe they show up a lot of times, but that's it. It's just a worship time. And they never get to those other levels. We need all three of those levels. And you hear us talk about this all the time at, at church because it is so important. Get involved in a small group. It can be Sunday school, men's fraternity, uh, the lady, there's a lot of really good ladies groups that meet, home groups. Plug yourself in because that's where real fellowship is going to take place. And it's one of the four cornerstones here. It's not like an option to do Christianity solo. <coughs> I wish you could see what's happening in some of our home groups. I mean, there's just some wonderful things happening. Same thing with our Sunday schools. And I can only speak to the group that I'm in because that's the one I experience. But I wish you could see what goes on. I wish everybody could come visit us once. We've got six or seven families, and there's probably, I don't know, ten kids maybe all together. The youngest, I think, is four years old. The oldest child in our group is 16 years old. And we get together and we eat and inevitably all the kids kind of, they'll be in the middle of the living room floor, maybe they're in an adjacent room, and they start playing games together. They'll be playing spoons or they're playing cards or whatever, and they're just laughing and cackling, and the four-year-old is sitting next to the 16-year-old, and they're not siblings, but they're all playing together. And nobody said to the teenagers, the older teenagers, hey, Go play with the younger ones, babysit them. No, it just happens. And they just have a great time. And then you look over and the ladies are sitting around the dining room table or something. And they're laughing and they're sharing life together. I don't know what they're talking about. Maybe how wonderful their husbands are. I don't know. And the guys, if the weather's nice, we'll be out on the deck and we're talking DIY projects or cars or guy stuff. But then eventually we all come in and the kids join us for the Bible study. And we talk about how do you apply this morning's sermon. And the kids are right in there participating with the adults. And some of them have some of the best insights and kind of remind us of what it's like to see the Bible with fresh eyes. And, you know, they hear, the kids get to hear other dads pray and other moms pray. And they get to hear the prayer requests. And it's, to me, it's just that's what the Christian community is meant to look like. Families sharing the Christian life together. I encourage you, whether it's Sunday school or one of these other groups I've mentioned, home groups or whatever, and there's a place in the bulletin there you can check off and we'll get you information about any of the small groups. Just check off the one that you're interested in. If you're going to grow in your relationship, you need to be involved some kind of small group. Maybe you tried one and it didn't fit. Find another one that fits your family and connect. It is so important. 
I mentioned home groups. Here's a thought for you. Several places in the book of Acts, it talks about the home being a place to meet for Bible study. I'll just share one example. There's some other examples. But over in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we read about a preacher by the name of Apollos. And his words are up on the screen. You can look it up if you like. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Talk about John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. She <coughs> had this guy, Apollos, and apparently he's quite the preacher. But also apparently, there's some things he didn't quite understand about Scripture. So what did they do? They didn't invite him to the temple or to the church building. They invited him to their home. And I love the word they explain the scriptures more adequately. So there's this idea you go to the home. The home is more comfortable. The home is more relaxing. The home doesn't have this academic, stiff, cold feel to it. Nothing wrong with Sunday school, nothing wrong with the classrooms we have here, but there's a different feeling when you share a meal and you meet in somebody's home. And scriptures talk about using the home. So you've got scripture, you've got fellowship, and the third thing that they intensely devoted themselves to, they were involved with, is worship. It said the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And you might say, I'm pastor. Where does it mention worship there? It says the breaking of bread. What does, what does that have to do with worship? Well, the breaking of bread here kind of has like a dual application. It does, it does mean eating together. And of course, as Baptists, we like to eat together, right? But it also is talking specifically about sharing the Lord's Supper together. How do we know that? Well, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek is a very detailed language. When you look at the Greek, they have articles and stuff that, are, that give a lot more information. Articles, I mean, the and a, prepositions like in and of and things like that. And they can be interpreted a lot, a lot of different ways other than in English. You see the word the, it means the. You see the word a, and it means a. But in the Greek, it's a lot more detailed than that. So if you look at this passage in the original Greek, the article the is there. So it's not breaking of bread. It's the breaking of bread. So they were devoted to the breaking of bread, not just breaking of bread. Or you could say it this way. They were devoted to sharing the meal together. Well, what would the be? It means a very specific meal. Well, almost everybody agrees it's talking about the Lord's Supper. So we're talking about worship at that point. So you kind of have a dual application here. The spiritual aspect of worship, but also the relationship aspect of eating the Lord's Supper together. It's important to worship together. That big circle that I told you is important to worship privately. But it's also important to come together and worship. Let me say this. It's also as important as it is for you to be here. 
it's important to have your children here. I'm not against sports. All my kids have played sports. I'm not against any kind of children's activities. But I think sometimes we just get those out of balance, parents. I mean, we will make sure that our child is never late for a tournament, a competition, or whatever. And then Sunday morning rolls around, and we can't get out of bed at 8.30 to be at church at 9.40. What message are we sending to our kids at that point? What are we saying about priorities at that point? I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm not telling you you should never go to a competition on a weekend. But I'm just saying, what message do we send when we get those kinds of things out of balance? We have to be in God's house. You know, sometimes I'll get those messages and texts and stuff about, you know, the weather and stuff like that. And, you know, it's cold outside, you know, rainy, that kind of idea. I got a text one Sunday morning from a, from a guy, from a friend, and he said, should I try to come to church today for worship? And I texted him back and I said, well, yes. You're tr preaching today, Billy. Hello. <laughs> but I do get those kinds of texts. And it's amazing how, how, how early in the week people will start asking me about church. Are we having church Sunday? You know, early this week they thought we might have some snow yesterday. And you heard that on the forecast. People were texting me on Monday. Are we going to have church this Sunday? I don't know. Let's, let's see what the weather does. And we're not going to ask you to come out if, the, if the, there's snow on the road. If there's a dusting of snow on the road, we're not going to have church because we don't want to put anybody's lives in jeopardy. And uh, the folks that go to our church that are from up north, they laugh at us when we cancel snow because, you know, there's like a, a, a dusting of snow on the road. But we live in the south. It's different. But we need to be a church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I don't, I don't think when you get to heaven and you stand before God, God's going to say, Billy, did you go to church on January 13th of 2019 when it was cold and rainy? Well, you know, I didn't really have a good, good winter jacket. You're out of here. I know you want a warmer climate anyway. <laughs> is important and we need to place a priority on it. Listen to this. The priority we place on coming together to worship God reveals something about who or what you truly worship. What's important to you? What do you place priority on? Scripture, fellowship, worship, the last one you notice is they were devoted to prayer. That's the fourth cornerstone he mentions here. Prayer. You know, it's interesting. The early church continued the emphasis that the Jewish people put on prayer. And in fact, they kind of took it to another level. They kind of intensified it because I think they realized the power that was available to them through prayer. Prayer ought to be who we are. I want to be a part of who we are. Again, it's not about minutes. It's not about lengthy prayer lists, but, it, but it's about praying. 
Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, which is talking about an attitude of prayer. And I think so many times our prayer life degenerates into a, a list of, of sick people and maybe a few missionaries or something. Our prayer life ought to be more than that. And we need to incorporate it into our lives. And it's a process like this other stuff we've talked about. It's like a journey we're on. You know, if you talk to somebody about their prayer life and they say they have this incredible prayer life, if they say that with humility, okay. But if I ever run into somebody and they talk about, I have this incredible prayer life and I don't sense any humility with them, I'm like, let me get away from you before the lightning bolts come down. You know what I'm talking about? Because prayer life is, is this journey we're on. It's this process where we're always learning and we're, we're in this adventure and we're talking with God and we're getting to know him better. A number of years ago in the Rose Bowl float parade on New Year's Day, a float stopped in the middle of the parade. And pretty soon it created this huge gap, and then there's a, a big backup behind it. People that were further along were asking, well, why is there a big gap in the parade? And the people that were right there were like, why is this float not moving? And so finally the officials came over to see what was going on, and this guy scurries out from under the float. He goes... I ran out of gas. Yeah, I know. Can you believe that? It runs out of gas. But here's the real irony of it. The float was for the standard oil company. <laughs> As God's people, we have these vast reservoirs of power at our disposal. But like the float guy, I think sometimes we fail to tap into them task is too big and we are too small to think that we can do this on our own. And we need to incorporate this cornerstone into our lives. We're going to end this service a little bit differently this morning. I always close with prayer and I am going to do that in just a moment. But I want to ask you when I pray this morning, I'd like for you to kneel with me. And I know physically some people can't do that. I understand that. And here's why I'm asking. Because I think a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier, our prayers just tend to do with sick people and stuff like that. Because we don't really feel that dependence and desperation that, that you see a lot of times in Scripture and you see in other parts of the world. Because in our, our life here, our lifestyles, we're not worried about having something to eat today or tomorrow. A lot of us are fairly comfortable so, so prayer, you know, is almost like that other drawer that we open up, you know, after church that, you know, we, we open that door every once in a while. But it doesn't have that, that desperation or that dependence or that humility that I think Scripture calls for. So I'd like for you to kneel with me today just to kind of show our humility. You know, the Bible doesn't talk about posture. And this doesn't make us any more spiritual if we, if we pray on one knee. But I do think it says something this morning about us if we take a knee as we pray. So I want to ask you to do that this morning. If you are physically able, we'll do it right now. I'd like to ask you to take a knee and I'm going to lead us all in prayer.
believe this is probably a beautiful sight for you today. We're acknowledging that you're the creator and worthy creatures. Father, we just come humbly before you today. And we praise you for who you are. And Father, as we kneel on this hard floor, and Father, we just express our dependence on you. I pray that we'll have an attitude that we're not depending on our stuff, our portfolios, or our bank accounts, or our comfortable lives. But Father, we realize that everything we have comes from you. And I just pray today, as we get ready for our time of commitment, that each of us will kind of reflect about what's priorities in our life. If we look at our calendar, we look at how we spend each day, what does what our time say is important? I pray as we look at these cornerstones in our lives, cornerstones of scripture and prayer, and fellowship and worship, that we look and we say, is this a priority in my life? Is this worship a priority in God's house? Is reading his word every day a priority? Is praying a priority? Is is being part of a, a small group of believers important to me? Father, I just pray that, Father, we, we struggle with that question today. And Father, we, we let you speak to us. I pray that we all do that today. In Jesus' name we pray.